Well, good morning, Twin Cities Church, to those of you who are online and to those of you who are with us today. It's a good-sized group with a lot of kids, and, and we love to see that. Um, this is uh, not an easy passage. It's not an easy sermon. Um, and uh, while I generally feel pretty inadequate to uh, preach the, the Word of God and to declare it with boldness and confidence this morning, I feel a little bit uh, extra amount of insecurity. So I'm going to pray here at the beginning of this message um, in discussing this uh, really challenging passage. Lord God, we really love the beautiful things in your Word, the beautiful pictures of your creation, the beautiful pictures of your mercy that extends throughout both the Old and New Testaments, and God, the, the, the great instruction that it gives us to live with, with wisdom and, and truth and righteousness in this world. Um, but God, we, uh, we can't ignore the passages that are very difficult, and this is one this morning. So God, our prayer today is that uh, you would give us all ears to hear and eyes to see what your word would have to say about this passage, that you would help me to speak with accuracy and with clarity and with boldness so that we can um, know you more and follow you more faithfully and extend love to each other and to the world uh, in a more generous and sacrificial way. In your son's name we pray, amen. So just by way of a little review, we have been working through the book of Ezekiel. We selected Ezekiel because it was written during a time of great upheaval in the nation of Israel. Uh, they had been under siege uh, from Babylon, and Babylon was successful in their initial efforts. Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar took uh, some of the people of Israel away into exile, but appointed a puppet king to still govern the land, and they ended up rebelling against him, which led to Nebuchadnezzar uh, coming in and completely wiping out the city of Jerusalem and destroying its temple and putting all of its people into exile, except for just a remaining few of the poor who tended the land. And so it seemed to be a good book, given the, the uh, context for the book of Ezekiel, it seemed to be a good book for us to go through during a time of, of not nearly as great as upheaval as the nation of Israel is experiencing at the time, but certainly uh, not an easy time uh, for us here in the U.S. or in, in very many places around the world that aren't experiencing uh, the kind of hardships due to uh, political challenges, social problems, uh, violence and oppression, and obviously COVID. There's just a lot of unrest, a lot of unrest. Well, Israel had been in this place of, of un upheaval and un unrest for uh, actually a number of centuries. Um, and all of their problems really came from the fact that they had forgotten God. And in their forgetting of God and in their worship of other gods, in their pursuit of other things for prosperity and happiness, uh, they got into these massive ruts of, of evil. And we've been looking at 
these, these um, sins that Israel had become enslaved to over the centuries, which eventually led to their collapse. And so the last five weeks we've been looking at these, they've been um, the, the following of lies and conspiracies as a nation, they were engaged in that. One of those lies and conspiracies uh, was rebellion against Babylon uh, from false prophets who were saying that they were going to be free in just a year or two. When God had clearly said, your exile is going to be for 70 years, you're going to serve the king of Babylon, marry off your kids, build houses and plant gardens and settle in and pray for the welfare of the city of Babylon. Well, false prophets came up and, and, and put forth lies and conspiracies into the nation and the nation started following them. And that led to further, further destruction coming upon them. The nation was guilty of oppressing the poor and the needy and the immigrant. One of the things that we see is when we believe that we are more responsible for our prosperity than God is, uh, we just begin to think for our own selves. We become selfish. We become greedy. We begin to think only about our own concerns and not the interests of others, which leads to the oppression of those who are weaker than us, who are poorer than us, who are less privileged. We saw that, that Israel as a whole was increasingly dishonoring mother and father, dishonoring the family, which was the, the foundational social unit for the prosperity of the nation. Last week, or two, last week, we looked at uh, the rampant sexual immorality and a culture of sexual violence that had occurred with, with rape and incest being very prominent within the nation of Israel. And two weeks ago, we looked at forsaking the Sabbath. God had given them the Sabbath in order to have an ordinance and a structure in their weekly lives that reminded them that God was indeed the source of their prosperity, and not just their prosperity, but also their happiness. They could rest one day a week, not work, enjoy the fruit of the labor, and still be more prosperous than those nations around them that were working constantly and oppressing their, their workers. And so these five things are highlighted in the book of Israel, excuse me, in the book of Ezekiel, that, that pinpoint uh, Israel's problems and why they collapsed as a nation. Ultimately, which the forsaking the Sabbath points out, they forgot God, and they walked away from God. And so today, I wanted to, we are going to transition into looking at why is judgment necessary? Because judgment is coming. This is a vision, today's passage, Ezekiel chapter 9, is a, is a vision of God's judgment that God gave to, to Ezekiel that he recorded. Uh, their, their collapse, their judgment, didn't look just like the vision. The vision was a representation of what was going to happen. But it is a declaration of God's judgment and it's hard to read. And I, I, I felt like it was an important message to include in this series because we're going to finish off the series looking at what it means to, to repent of our sin and to move into a, a posture of being what God called Ezekiel to be, a watchman. How are we as a community going to be 
watchmen so that we can observe our community, observe our world, and maintain a posture of repentance so that we don't fall into the same trap that Israel did. But central to the idea of repenting and being watchful is the recognition that, that God is going to judge, that God is going to judge. Now, this is a hard vision to read. It speaks of these executioners that God had called to go throughout the city and to kill everyone that hadn't been marked, including women and children and old men. It's one of those passages that you read and think, I'm not sure this is the, the God I know. I think we've all observed scenes of evil, scenarios of evil, and have cried out for justice. I think this, this year we've had plenty of examples. I think that when we all watched, if you watched it, the video of the police officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck, uh, we cried out for justice and judgment. As we've watched videos and read stories of the Capitol mob on January 6th, crushing the woman that died, violently assaulting police, which ended up in a police officer dying, we cried out for justice and judgment. Just a few weeks ago, you may have read in the paper or saw on the news somewhere um, of a St. Paul woman who beat her two-year-old daughter to death when she lost her temper. You know, you read those stories and you understand that certainly that woman was not in a right frame of mind, but we still long for justice and for judgment. There's really no excuse for that, a two-year-old beaten to death. And even in, our, even in the books that we read, nonfiction or fiction, we, we read of scenarios and situations where we can see an image, what are very, you know, they are, they are realities in our world. I'm reading, right now I'm working through, uh, you know, J.K. Rowling, she finished Harry Potter and she started a series of, of adult murder mysteries, and it's based in reality, it's fiction, but there are real type of things that happen. And as you read these kinds of things, you, you, you're, you, your insides cry out for justice. I'm reading also right now a nonfiction book about the systematic racism in the city of Detroit from basically early, you know, 1940s through the 80s and 90s where, where governments and corporations and the real estate um, agents and, and industry where there was just this concerted effort to keep black people down. And reading it is just, I have to put it down sometimes because it's just, you cannot believe what is happening in an intentional way. And so I think we all recognize and know and see that there are times where justice has to be done, evil has to be stopped. But passages like this are hard. Why is there judgment? Why is there the, the executing of, of children and women and old people? Anna and I have a friend who told us that, you know, she stopped reading the Old Testament 
when she, would, when she was reading and she got to the book of Joshua, which is the, the narration of God using Israel to judge the nations in the land that they were promised. She got to Joshua and she stopped reading saying, this isn't the God that I know. Well, the problem with that is when Jesus says that everything written about me, everything written in the law and the prophets and writings, which is the entire Old Testament, is about me. When, when, when Jesus states that, we are, we are left with the burden to understand what, what is it about Jesus that is being reflected in these passages. We, we can't pick and choose what portions of the Bible we're going to like and dislike. What we have to do is strive to understand why these passages are there. Why are these passages <clears throat> so severe? Why are they so hard to read? So today what I want to do is, is, is work through this passage a little bit and see what it is teaching us about God, uh, about humanity, about the need for judgment, um, and, and about Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to do. Now, the, one of the challenges that we have this morning is that we're going to be touching on issues that you can't, you can't completely work through uh, in 30 or 40 minutes. Uh, you can't completely work through them in an entire book. Uh, these, are, these are perpetual, eternal concerns and discussions. But what I'd like to do is point us in some direction for, for our own prayers, for our own study, for our own understanding, so that it's, we, we can kind of maybe get on the right track. It's helpful to understand the context of Ezekiel chapter 9. It takes place within the context of a, of a vision that had started earlier in chapter 8. And the vision starts, God literally comes to Ezekiel, and he grabs Ezekiel by the hair and lifts him up, <laughs> and then takes him to the temple, because God's got some things that he wants Ezekiel to see, and he's going to take and he's going to take Ezekiel into parts of the temple that really he's not allowed to go into, which is why I think he grabs him by the hair. So God shows Ezekiel a few things that are going on in the temple: a false god, a false idol, an idol to a false god had been erected in the temple, the temple that is supposed to be dedicated to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God told Ezekiel to dig a hole in the wall so that he could see what was going on on the inside. And when, Dan, when, when Ezekiel dug the hole in the wall, he saw 70 elders worshiping idols of false gods that had been carved into the walls of the temple itself. The 70 elders representing the 70 leaders that represented all of the people of the nation. So all of the nation was represented in those 70 people. He then took them to the, one of the gates of the temple, and, they, and, and Ezekiel observed women weeping for the god Tammuz. And it was a ceremony that, that histor is historically understood to involve 
temple prostitution. And then he took him into the inner court, the inner court being a place where only uh, a few people could go at only certain times of the year. Takes him to the inter- inner court, and there are 25 priests there. The 24, 24 of those priests would have been uh, the leaders of the cohorts of the priests that were responsible for the regular duties of the temple. They were divided up into 24 groups, and so you have the, the leaders representing that and the high priests. So, and so again, you had these leaders representing all of the priests. You had these leaders representing all of the people. And what what God is showing Ezekiel is that the nation of Israel has become a people completely corrupt in their idolatry and in their worship of foreign gods, which is what has led it to uh, be this culture of violence where really the strong are oppressing the weak, but nobody is happy. The, The city, the nation is suffering. And there are, there are, there's a statement that they make here in, in chapter 8. They're making an excuse for their idolatry and their violence. They're saying, God doesn't see us. God has forsaken the land. He has left. He doesn't see the misery that we are in. And instead of repenting and following God, As outlined in the law, God said, if you turn back to me in the experience of misery, which is a consequence of your rebellion, I will come and I will restore you and I will restore the land. It was a repeated theme throughout the Mosaic law. But instead of using their misery as as an impetus to repent, they used it as an excuse to continue to seek other gods, to continue to seek prosperity and happiness on their own, which just continued to lead to more violence and bloodshed. So that's when you come to chapter 9. God has reached the point where he is no longer going to suffer the rebellion, the injustice, the idolatry, the violence, the bloodshed, the oppression of the nation of Israel. And so as... As Gil read this morning, he shows Ezekiel this vision. God calls six executioners with their weapons, with their weapons to kill. And there's a seventh person who is some sort of a scribe. He's got writing equipment. God instructs that man to go and mark every single person in the city that is expressing anguish and dismay at where Israel has come to, at where Jerusalem has come to. So this man went out and looked. Who are those who are upset? Who are showing how they are upset? Who are disgusted by the state of Israel's idolatry and violence? He was to put a mark on their foreheads. And then the executioners were to go and kill everyone man, woman, and child, young and old, who didn't have that mark on their forehead. And they were to begin that process of killing at the temple, which was the source and the heart of the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. And then they were to take the corpses and dump them in the temple, which would have completely desecrated and violated the temple. So, 
Ezekiel sees this, this, this killing, this, this destruction of human life, and he falls down crying because, the, because it is so extensive. And he asks God if he is going to spare anybody because evidently the man with writing couldn't find very many people to mark that forehead, which means that even though, even though it was young and old, men and women, there was still this societal, cultural buy-in to evil. And it had gone on for centuries. Men, women, and children carry on the culture of the generations before them unless they repent. And God had seen this for hundreds of years. Regardless of their state, whether they were strong or weak, a man or woman, a child or old, repeatedly God saw generation after generation after generation bloodshed and violence as a consequence of their idolatry. And God had come to a point where he wanted to put it to an end. And the Lord and they make this make a similar excuse here in chapter 9. Prior they said God doesn't see he has forsaken the land. Here they say, God has left. He has forsaken the land. He doesn't see anymore what's going on. Justifying their violence. They justified their idolatry. They're justifying their, idol their, their violence and bloodshed. And God says that the, the judgment that they are experiencing, and this is an important point to see, the judgment that they are experiencing is their own sin coming back on their heads. Their judgment matched their crimes. No more and no less. It was fair judgment. And then in chapter 10, so after, we, after Ezekiel sees all of this destruction, chapter 10, which I think is, in terms of, you know, if, you, if, you, if you read through the entire Old Testament, This point in, in Ezekiel chapter 10 is, a, is an incredibly depressing moment. God leaves the temple. God leaves the presence of the people that he has promised to be with. He goes. He goes. After centuries of dwelling with them, after putting up with them for so long, after blessing them for so long, after seeing a few kings and a few generations actually lead the nation to follow him, which resulted in an abundant amount of prosperity and happiness for the whole nation. You, know, you remember at the end of the book of Exodus, even after the golden calf incident, they, they, they build the tabernacle, and at the end of the book of Exodus, it's a powerful moment. God's presence comes and fills that tabernacle. And for hundreds of years, God is present with them in the tabernacle. And then Solomon comes to reign, and Solomon builds his temple, and God comes and, and dwells with the nation of Israel in this, in this beautiful and magnificent temple. And they have a, a massive week-long ceremony to honor God and to give him thanks for 
his abundant blessing and prosperity for the nation. Where here you get to chapter 10, God leaves. God leaves. So that's the context for this, this vision of judgment and justice that God levels out against Israel in chapter 9. And I think it leaves us at least with these two questions. Again, there are a lot of questions, and we'll have a Q&A time afterwards to, to, prob- to address some that you have. But I want to just ask two. One, why is judgment needed? And two, is God just in his judgment? Now, we see the word justice a lot. We, we, went, uh, we were driving yesterday as a family. We went over and did some cross-country skiing at Worth Park, and we were behind a car, and, and the, I can't remember what all of the message said, but the, a bumper sticker that said, hey, that anybody reading this bumper sticker is to know that the, that the occupants of this car are, 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 are fighting for justice. We see it a lot. And there's a need in our culture, there's a need in our society, a need in our cities for justice, absolutely. But this seems to me that there's an assumption behind what that means. I think when we see injustice, when we see evil, we all have this yearning. Something needs to be made right. Something, someone needs to be punished. The evildoers have to be punished. The victims need to be need to be compensated in some way. So we have this sense that justice needs to be done, but when it comes down to actually working it out, we come into a lot of problems. Michael Sandel is one of the foremost contemporary philosophers on this subject of justice, and he explains that, you know, ancient theories of justice were really founded on the idea of virtue, and people should get what they deserve based upon their virtue or their goodness or their lack of goodness, and that our modern theories of justice seem to be more centered around freedom and personal choice. And he argues is that it, it may be, seem easy to kind of separate these two, but they're not really separated, and really, when it comes down to it, all understandings and theories of justice Uh, have to address what is the best way to live? What what are the good things? What What is the best way and the good way to live as individuals and as a society? Which means, he argues, that you have to you have to come to a point where you are judging and evaluating the goodness and the values of things. It's he's got a book out called Justice. Um doing the right thing. And he just goes through all of these, really a lot of contemporary situations that we find ourselves in. Abortion, gay marriage, economic injustice, all of these kinds of things, and works through them. And he's a, he's a professor at Harvard University and is, considers him, would consider himself a liberal, but he just goes into his explanations about these things and says, listen, it is not as black and white, it is not as simplistic as everybody makes these things out to be. All of the sides have valid arguments because all of the sides are making value judgments. What are good? What are good things? Now, he, he positions, he, he argues that there is a way forward. We need to, we need to encourage and lift up and the formation of virtues in our society, and we need to have a process where we as a culture are engaged in some sort of reasoning together about what those virtues are and about how we are going to live the good life together. 
I think it's actually a good way to think about going forward. But the problem is, is that um, I'm not sure it's, well, I'm pretty sure it's not going to work. <laughs> because we are still stuck with the dilemma of evaluating what is good and what is evil. It's the original challenge that man and woman faced in the garden. They desired the knowledge of good and evil. They desired to be like God. They desired to pursue a prosperity not based upon what God said was going to prosper them or upon God's prospering of them, but on what they could do to prosper themselves. So we are stuck back at this situation where we are evaluating good and evil, but we have no basis of authority for determining what is good and what is evil. And that has always been our challenge. And even when we come up with some evaluations about what is good and what is evil, and all of our laws reflect as a society generally what we perceive to be good and what we perceive to be evil, we're never settled. And, and in, even in the ones that we are, like you know, pretty much generally, all cultures affirm that murder is wrong. But it, when it comes to execute justice, we still see ourselves failing. We still see ourselves punishing people for murder that didn't commit murder. So we will never articulate what justice is perfectly, and we will never carry it out what it is perfectly. Evil and our own sin will always taint it. We as humans have a problem. When we have knowledge of evil, we commit evil. We have knowledge of good, and we can do good, but we can't get away from this problem of evil. Eventually, our sins as a society come back on our heads. Our greed leads to the, to the economic oppression of others, and not just economic oppression, physical oppression. Economic greed was a, a significant motivation behind the oppression of slavery. Our sins of sexual immorality are coming back upon our heads because we have a culture that oppresses the weak sexually to take advantage of them and enslaves many of us to our own sins of lust, never leading to any sort of happiness or prosperity as people or in intimate companionship characterized by love with others. We know justice exists and we long for it and we sense that we should be able to experience it. And all of those kinds of feelings and yearnings are indeed what God has given to us uh, as we are made in his image. But this taint of evil that is present within us and in our society uh, disables us from fully being able to experience it for ourselves and establish it in our culture. Which means that there is a need for judgment. We see it in our individual senses in regard to uh, crime and judgment and justice. There is a need for it. But what happens when societies get to this point? N.T. Wright wrote a book uh, a few years ago called Evil and the Justice of God. And it's just, a, it's just a little book. And he's certainly not trying to answer all of the questions. Um, he argues that we as a culture really don't deal with this subject of evil very well 
Modernity tends to believe that we will eventually progress to the point where everybody will be educated and sophisticated and liberal-minded enough to where we won't have evil anymore. Postmodernity doesn't really want to identify anyone or anything as evil uh, because that would give them a fixed identity, but they also deny uh, the fact that we as a people, as, a cult- as cultures, as a, as a human society, uh, really are never going to get to the point of improving ourselves because even the last 120 years as a, as a world and all of its crimes that we have seen from the Holocaust to 9-11 to slavery and the continued injustice around the world, we just seem to be repeating ourselves. And so modernity and postmodernity doesn't have really any solutions And when we are faced with the reality of evil in our world, he argues that, you know, we typically jump at some um, extreme position to to judge it and remedy it, but then really don't engage in any sort of significant conversation that would enable us to truly address it. And he thinks that there's a couple things that that we are just starting to kind of realize is the philosophers and analysts of our culture, he says it does seem like we're starting to make some ground in his, in his evaluation, and I'm just kind of working with his work. This is not a subject that I've actually spent a lot of time studying and writing about. He says we start, it seems like we're starting to recognize that evil is indeed present within human beings, every human being. And that we just can't consider ourselves as fundamentally good or fundamentally bad. We have to recognize that evil is present within us. And then he, and then he argues, again, from his, from his research and what he sees our best thinkers addressing, he says, it seems like we are actually coming to a point also where we recognize that evil has this suprahuman, this beyond human capacity that can not only overtake us as as individual human beings, but that it can take over human cultures, whether it's corporations and governments or nations and even churches. Evil has this capability to kind of, and he kind of hesitates because of of our modern hesitancy to deal with the supernatural. But he says there's really no other way to understand it. And he says our contemporary thinkers are kind of coming to the same place. It seems like there's this possession that occurs. This possession that takes over social entities of various sizes that become evil. He says that evil is is at, at its core a commitment to a lie that eventually breeds violence and tyranny. We've seen what happens when people are committed to lies. Even when it seems like they are motivated by God. You know, I I just in the paper this week I saw a participant in the in the mob attack on the Capitol carrying this massive, I don't know, like a six by six cross and it just it just made me angry it made me angry and in our next series on mission our mission as a church we're going to we're going to look at what happens when christianity is overcome by liberalism and when christianity is overcome by nationalism
we can become very convinced about our own truth when in fact we are really living out a commitment to a lie. This is where Israel had gotten. This is where Israel had gotten. They believed the lie that they could be more, at the fundamental level, that they could be more prosperous and happy without God. And after centuries of people looking out for themselves, it led to violence, sexual violence, betrayals, favoritism, economic oppressions, child sacrifice. The culture had been overcome, and God said, this is enough. And in the end, he executed judgment and he stopped evil. Just as he had used Israel to stop the same types of evil in the nations that were before them. In fact, throughout Ezekiel says, you know what? You have come to the point where the evils that you commit are worse than the evils that the nations were committing around you, the very nations that I told you to wipe out and destroy because of their idolatry and violence. So God is consistent in his judgment. He showed no favoritism towards Israel. They came to the same fate that the other nations did. So is God just? Is God just? I'm sorry for the length on this one. Well, there are two arguments. I'm going to talk about three arguments that the Bible gives us to explain the justice of God. And the first two, you can kind of say, well, they seem to maybe be circular arguments. The first argument that the Bible has to defend the goodness of God is the fact that God is our creator. God is the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. And, in, and having that's, an, that's a position of authority. You know, when Paul was explaining why, why God raises up vessels for mercy and raises up vessels for destruction in order to show his mercy in Romans chapter 9 through 11, he gets some pushback from this imaginary um, debater. And then Paul says, who are we as pots to criticize the potter. And, and so God's, God is the embodiment of good. God cannot do evil. God is the creator and the sustainer. He created life. He defined life. He defined what is good. He defined what is evil. And in that place of authority, we can't argue with him. When, Mo, when, when Job was suffering evils that, you know, were not perpetrated by any individual, like sickness, um, depression, and when he was looking at the suffering that he was experiencing that were, that, that were perpetrated by people, because uh, raiders came in, raiders killed his family, raiders stole his stuff, he had evil and injustices being committed against him, and he had no way of understanding why. He had no way of understanding why. And you don't, and it's not until the end of the book that you get some, that you get God explaining things, but God never explains things to Job. God doesn't explain to Job why he has suffered the way he has. God doesn't explain to Job while he has suffered evil and injustice at the hands of others. He doesn't explain to Job why he has suffered the evils and injustices due to, to natural causes. He simply says, 
Who are you to judge me, Job? I have created everything in heaven and on earth. Who are you to stand in judgment of me? Now, the reader knows that there is this battle between good and evil taking place between God and Satan, but Job never gets a clue into that. We as readers do. And so God is creator and sustainer. God is good. You know, when David is confessing his sin of murder and adultery to God, um, that he committed against Bathsheba and her family, her husband Uriah, and others that were, were killed in the, in the cover-up, David says, against you, you only, God, have I sinned, that you may stand right in your judgments. So the scriptures argue that God is creator and sustainer and definer of good and evil is always good. So those are kind of the two big thrusts that we see throughout scriptures. Obviously, those could be developed more. It's the third reason that I want us to think about. And which brings us to the point of understanding Jesus in the midst of all of these things. God is just in his judgment and shows his justice. He shows his goodness because he was not only willing to suffer under his own wrath and judgment, but did. But did. God has always extended mercy to people. He did to man and woman in the garden. He did to humankind when he, when, he, when he pulled out from humankind Noah and his family and saved humanity from the destruction that he leveled against the all living things because of the evil and violence. This is just seems to be the cycle of human, of human cultures. God has always extended mercy. The nation of Israel was an extension of God's mercy to the nation's of the world, but always throughout Scripture, the mercy that God shows to humanity always has pointed ultimately to the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, God in his justice could not let evil go unpunished. Whether it was the nations, whether it was Israel, it doesn't matter. God cannot let evil go unpunished. The crying out that God has for justice has to be fulfilled. But the scriptures say that God in his goodness, God in his righteousness, cannot execute justice and judgment without the opportunity for mercy. Without the opportunity for mercy. So God, in his mercy and in his justice took on the punishment through Jesus. The death of Jesus was as violent or more violent than any of those that those executioners would have been engaged in in that nation. Jesus was thrust into a place of fear when, the, when a mob in the dark came. His friends ran away. He was alone. He was dark. And there was an army there to take him captive. He was tried in darkness under illegal circumstances. He was put before Israel. He was put before Rome. He was accused of things that he did not do. And Pilate, in his effort to excuse himself, you know, Jesus, don't you know that I have the authority to give you life or give you death? And God, through Jesus, said, you only have authority that I have already given you. 
meaning that God himself was entering into the judgment that he would face under the hands of the Jews and the Gentiles represented in the, in the, in the, in the empire of Rome. So in his own authority and in his own power, he submitted to his own judgment. And he suffered a violent death. And just as God abandoned the temple, leaving Israel alone, he abandoned Jesus. And Jesus experienced what it was like for the first time in his eternal state as God and in his human state as man, he felt for the first time what it was like to be disunioned, to be broken from God. And in that moment, he satisfied God's wrath, God's crying out for justice. It was met. Jesus met the requirement of justice. But it didn't stop there. Jesus' death also put a final stop in evil's progress. It, it was the effort that God finally extended into his world to restrain and stop evil. Jesus had to be a man because man represented evil. The, the execution of evil on earth has been committed by humanity. God had to come and represent humanity. Humanity had to experience justice. Humanity had to take the punishment for its evil. But it also had to be God because God alone is the author of life. God alone is able to overcome the ultimate consequences of sin and evil, which is death. Satan's power. There is an evil suprahuman force behind humanity's evil. The Bible calls it the devil, Satan, the great serpent. It's a, a huge degree of mystery still, even though the Bible speaks of it. And the devil's power is in death and in sin, which leads to death. And so Jesus Christ, God through Jesus Christ, conquered the devil by conquering death, conquering sin, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The sting of death and the sting of sin was rendered powerless for the first time and for all time. God, through his mercy and his love, which is greater than judgment, finally saved humanity in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So how do we respond to God's mercy? Well, I, I think that we typically have the same response that Israel did. The first one, God doesn't care about me and my misery. I'm on my own, which gives us the permission to play the victim, and to continue to extend injustice and violence to others in our own pursuit of happiness and well-being. God doesn't care. I'm on my own. Or God doesn't exist. There is no, there is no divine justice. There is no divine law. There is no divine requirement. Therefore, I'm going to live like I want to because God doesn't exist. That's what we do. It takes as much faith to believe that God doesn't exist, probably more so, 
than to believe that God does exist. There's no proof for either one. Tim Keller makes a great argument about that in his book, Making Sense of God. It takes faith to believe that God doesn't exist because there is some evidence that points to the fact that God probably does. Both reasons, God doesn't care or God doesn't exist, give us an excuse to turn to other places, other sources of happiness and prosperity, giving us the permission to hold on our sin, which we love, because the sin gives us some degree of happiness and a sense of prosperity, even though it is hurting other people. Well, in Jesus Christ, God shows that he does care and that he is willing to suffer in order to help us, in order to provide a way out as individuals and as a culture. And God does, does indeed exist, and he proved it through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which was foretold for centuries through the Old Testament. And God is good because he extends mercy to all of us who deserve judgment. And so in this, in this passage that looks at a very harsh judgment that God has extended to the nation of Israel, we need to be aware that the scriptures say that Jesus is going to return. Jesus, the innocent victim, Jesus who took the judgment of God upon himself for all of humanity, he's coming back, and he's not coming back as a baby He's coming back as a judging king, the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, and the only one who is qualified to level a righteous judgment on this world. Let's pray. Lord God, there are times where we need to see the severity of your judgment. So I thank you, God, for it, because we need to recognize that that we deserve it. We deserve death. We have hurt others and we have offended you. So God, our prayer is that you would help us to respond to these, these passages which are harsh. Shows the harshness of our sin. Our sins coming down on our own heads. Help us, God, to repent. To not declare that you don't care, that you don't exist, but to repent and to acknowledge that we're responsible and help us, God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see that Jesus has indeed provided for us, has conquered and taken care of our sin and has promised life. In your son's name we pray, amen.